Hello and welcome to episode four of Film Club. I'm Adam. I'm Bex. And uh, we're here with a jar of film categories, picking one at random each week and then watching a film of either of our choices and discussing the results for better or worse, mainly worse this week. This week has been worse, yeah. Well, let's talk a bit about the category uh, that we picked. So we've snookered ourselves a little bit here, haven't we? Because last week, uh, people that listened to episode three um, will have heard us discussing our Danny Boyle directed choices. Mm. Uh, Yours was 28 Days Later, Mm -hmm. starring Killian Murphy. Mm -hmm. So imagine our surprise when we pull the next category out of the jar, and it's Killian Murphy's Finest Hour, Um, which is tricky because... A lot of people, a lot of people would argue Killian Murphy's finest hour was Twenty Eight Days Later, which we've already covered. Yeah, they... well, Twenty Eight Days Later was one of his one of his earlier films, right? I mean, I think before this he'd done, or at the same time he'd done Disco Peaks, which I've never seen. No, I mean either. That, it's an Irish film, I think. Right? And, Is that um, what you said? Irish, just then an Irish accent. <laughs> I don't believe I did that. Okay. But, um, You're part Irish. That's that's allowed. Oh, that's probably that's an authentic accent. That's true. By virtue of your passport. <laughs> It's not authentic, um, but I'll take it. The other thing that's slightly tricky about this week's category was that you don't like the film Sunshine. Oh, uh, no, 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 no. I don't... It's not like I don't like it. Okay. I, find, I think it's about 45 minutes too long. Okay. But I think the concept is really cool, and there are some really cool bits in it. The bit where they're, like, um, fixing the sale and doing yeah. all that stuff, that's really... That's great, like, like space thriller. Okay. But then it goes a bit bananas, I think. But once again, because we discounted that last week when we had to pick a Danny Boyle film... We can hardly pick, and, and and I know you're not a fan of it as a whole, we can hardly pick it as Killian Murphy's finest hour. So that's another film that we've ruled ourselves out of. Agreed, yeah. Should, do you want to should we talk about some of the films, like list out a few Killian Murphy films? Yeah, I've definitely got a few that I almost picked. I only had one other that I almost picked. Well, it's kind of tricky, isn't it? Because the topic wasn't a Killian Murphy film, it was Killian Murphy's finest hour. So we had to try and find something that showcased his talents. And also it had to be a film that he was a big part of, which mm. is why... I didn't go for um, Batman Begit or sorry uh, The Dark Knight because mm. he's in it and he's good in it but it's not his finest hour and he's certainly not even in it for an hour you no. know he's he's a bit player in that film yeah really. agreed um, I I must admit I didn't I don't I didn't know a lot of Kelly Murphy's kind of back catalogue when I when we first start, got this category so uh, and uh, and only because we just watched 28 Days Later which I think he is brilliant in and mm-hmm. he's so young in it and he does a really good job I is think. he is he brilliant in it or is it that other people in it are quite bad <laughs> so he's brilliant by comparison uh... I, I mean, I'm playing devil's advocate. I think I agree with you. I no, think I think he's very good. But I think that's a really valid point. Is that you know he he he's like the he's a a key role in there, and most of his supporting artists are bum. So that does always make him shine a little bit brighter. I think um, other films that he has been in. Um, obviously, Twenty Eight Days Later, Disco Pigs, which I've not seen, but I feel like I should see it. Twenty Eight Days Later, Batman Begins. Um, Breakfast at Pluto. Never heard of that. Yes, that's like a kind of sort of like a velvet gold mine, Bowie esque glam rock oh. kind of fantasy drama. I think I haven't seen it to okay. be honest, but he, I think, I think he plays. Oh god, I'm gonna get this wrong. Um, it, he, th- there's some kind, th- there's uh, there's like a sort of gender fluidity to his role in that film. I think, right. which might actually have made it. Maybe it is his finest hour because uh-huh. it's it's certainly a marked departure from a lot of the other films he's done. He's won a lot of. He won the Irish Film and Television Award for best leading lead role in that in Breakfast at Pluto. Mm-hmm. 
Um, he was in. He's also in the wind that shakes the barley. See, I almost picked that. Mm. I haven't seen it. No. Um, but it's, it's an Irish period drama, right? Yeah. Or it's kind of historical epic. I think he's the lead in it, and I believe it got quite a lot of acclaim. So maybe yeah. that's his finest hour. Yeah. Well, I don't wonder why I didn't. I mean, pick that. spoiler alert. I guess by saying that, we're admitting neither of the films that we've actually picked are Killian Murphy's finest <laughs> hour. We tried our best. Um, and then you're going on to Sunshine, um, Mr. Man, what's in that? Broken. Um, and he was in, that's not listed here, he was in that one with Sienna Miller and um, Kira Knightley. Right. What's it called? The, the, it was quite recent, it's like a war film. Uh, what? Uh, not Dunkirk. Oh, he was. Oh, no, he is in, in Dunkirk. I did consider Dunkirk as well, because, but again. He's in it for about five seconds. Yeah, but he's he's fairly pivotal and he's important he's to He's having to a that cry point. on a beach, and I think we can argue that there are hundreds he's, of thousands of other men no, having a cry on that beach. Isn't too. he scared in a boat in one of the most pivotal scenes with a father and son? I, I really can't. Can't. No, he's not. He's a soldier. He's not like one of the. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a Dunkirk. soldier. They try and rescue him, and then he has a freak out in the boat. Oh, he's, is that him? Yeah, I think so. He's fairly important to Dunkirk, I would the, argue. Was he one of the pilots? Oh, God. Don't test me too far. But, I mean, I think he's... I would he's, like to rewatch that. I think he's in it more than you think he is. But I agree, Dunkirk is not a film of which he is the star. No. Certainly. Yeah. yeah. Um, Are you going to read out every film he's been in? No, no, no. I'm done now. Uh, okay. The, the end. <laughs> the, the only other one I considered was, because um, I really want to see it, is uh, Ben Wheatley's 2016 film Free Fire. Do you remember this? No. It's es- essentially... Uh, it's essentially a very long shootout that is also a film. The okay. whole thing, I think, is one big set piece action. Like cowboy? More of a heist kind of thing. Okay. Um, it's got Brie Larson in it as well mm. and a bunch of a bunch of other people. And I think it was it, it got some fairly good reviews, although I think a lot of people said it is, you know, it's essentially a, a long drawn out action sequence. Oh, okay. um, but he's fairly highly billed. But what I realised looking at this is that he is not the main star in many films, is no. he? Certainly not recently. No. And do you, what, I wonder why. Because he's good. Like, he's a really he's a really good actor, mm. in my like rubbish opinion. But, um, and he's, uh, um, he's fairly handsome. I don't think he... We had a bit of a discussion, didn't we? In the yeah. middle of watching one of the films we picked about how attractive he was. Because you didn't, you said you didn't actually think he was that attractive. No. But I was surprised, because I think he's a handsome guy. I think he's a really uncommon... Well, in my, for me, he, he in the film that I picked, he's kind of like heartthrob. Um, and I, I think he's really unconvincing at that. I don't think he, I don't think he's very well cast in that role. Mm. He's he plays like psychos really well and re, like troubled people really well. Um, he's got loads of color. Like he's just he's got a lot of you know strings to his bow. I feel like he's got really he's got very piercing eyes, which I think help in a lot of his acting roles. Um, I think that he is he's on the unusual side of attractive, which I think is good. Yeah. Um, but there is a sort of anxiousness about his character mm. and about the way that he acts, I think, and a nervousness mm. that I think is a little bit off-putting. Mm. Um, I suppose that's, it's quite interesting because in, in the film you chose, which we'll get onto in a second, certainly in the first half of it, he's very suave for yeah. good reason. Yeah, and that's what I mean. Like, I don't think he quite pulls that off because I don't think he is that suave. Right. I, I don't think he, he, he has that kind of physicality mm. um, or, or, or kind of confidence maybe yeah okay um, and yeah it seems like more often than not in the, in the films we've mentioned he's supporting role mm. like you say in some in some cases he's you know he's got sort of a powerful 10 minutes in a film yeah um, yeah, yeah. yeah so shall we start with yours can we watch that one first yeah <laughs> 
So I I picked uh, the when was it made? Two thousand and five. Two thousand and five. Wes Craven. Wes Craven. Sorry, Wes Craven. <laughs> Wes Craven directed Red Eye. Now, I think if I'd have actually t- uh, spent a bit more time looking into this, I would have immediately, without even watching that film, because I'd never seen it before, known that that wasn't going to be Killian Murphy's Finest Hour. But it ticks a lot of boxes for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like uh, late 90s, early 2000s, uh, thriller, horror. Um, Where's Craven? Oh, Where's Craven? What are I, I No, that's right. <laughs> Where's Craven? Obviously, like really good for Scream and Halloweeny kind of stuff. So I was like, oh, this is gonna be a really good thriller. I loves me a thriller on a plane. Oh my god, this is comes in a long list of brilliant air plane based hijack kind of films that I thought this was. And spoiler alert. Red Eye is not a hijack film. It's just a part that happens to be on a plane and you get the feeling like they couldn't quite, they run out of budget so they couldn't quite hijack the plane. Anyway, that's not the plot. Um, flight disaster films that I also love are Flight Pan, Air Force One, Die Hard 2, Final Destination, Alive, which we had in a, in a way ages ago category. Oh yeah, what, what was the category? This is pre, before we made it into a podcast when we were just doing Film remember. Club for our own amusement. It was some sort of... I can't remember what the category was. No, I can't. It wasn't a disaster movie. No. It wasn't starring Ethan Hawke, although that is obviously, both those things apply. I can't remember. Anyway, no. so I think, I, I love um, like plane, plane hijack films. So mm. I thought this is what this was going to be. Um, but actually, um, I'll just give you, I can give you a quick, like, rundown of the story. So, um, it's a woman called Lisa, who's played by, um, Rachel McAdams. Yep. She hates flying. Classic. That classic, uh, uh, like, <laughs> flight trope. She's, like, nervous. A lot of deep breathing. And obviously there is, um, turbulence. Um, but... So there's this guy who's who's called Jackson Ripner who is um, played by Cleo Which Murphy. is a terribly on the on oh, the nose Jack the Ripper reference, and I even make a joke about that in the film. Yeah. I mean, it's that's your first clue that this is not a film taking itself as seriously no, as we thought it was. It's very heavy-handed. Anyway, so he's like this kind of um, hitman, I guess, and he starts off trying like they kind of you know get quite flirtatious, and then basically as soon as they sit on the flight, he's like. Um, this isn't what you think it is. And he basically blackmails her to... She's She is, like, the manager of a massive hotel. Yeah, like a head concierge kind yeah. of thing. And there's this back plot where there's, like, a politician who's going to get assassinated in her hotel and he is blackmailing her by threatening her dad. And, oh, it, it, you can you can see the layers of... Well, it's not even... There's, like, two layers. Uh, but none of... There's no... There's no like hijacking the plainness of it, so that was disappointed in my eyes. Yeah, it was very. I mean, there were some there were some good sharp shocks in this film, but it's it's not as advertised. I remember no. when it came out. If you and if you go online, we'll put on social media as well some of the posters for Red Eye when it came out. They look. It looks chilling. Mm. It looks like it's all going to be set on a plane. Yeah. It's called Red Eye. I know. Um, all of the uh, all of the taglines are like fear takes flight and all yeah. that kind of thing. But I would say it's it's I guess it's about as much as it's about as much as plane based as speed is bus based. There's a big chunk before. Oh yeah, no. yeah. There's a big chunk before they get on the transport, and then there's a big long stretch afterwards as well. Yeah, actually, you're probably right. 
Yeah, speed is obviously brilliant. Though. Yeah, I, but I but that's what I'm saying. In Red Eye, I wanted more plane. I yes. wanted the whole thing to be. I much as you love a plane disaster movie, I like a movie that is very bound by rigid rules. Yeah. One one of my favorite bits of filmmaking, and it's probably not objective objectively a great film. Uh, is buried with Ryan Reynolds, uh-huh. where the whole thing takes place essentially in a coffin. Well, yeah, and I think those sorts of chamber pieces where you know you're confined to a room or a house, I think they're really smart, and that you they can actually be really clever with your spaces. And I don't think this really did that. Like you know, on flight plan, um, do you remember the story of that? No. So Jodie Foster's daughter gets kidnapped basically on a pl- on a flight, and she's like, well, she's got to be here in this in this aeroplane somewhere. Conveniently, Jodie Foster designs aeroplanes. Of course she so does. She knows that airplane inside out. Like They've picked the wrong place to kidnap this girl, I haven't know. they? I uh, And uh, so, yeah, so Jodie Foster... So, uh, in that play, film, and also in Air Force One, I think, airplanes seem massive. Yeah. <laughs> like, she's upstairs, downstairs, in, like, the bottom bit where all the luggage is, you know. But uh, um, in this one, they're basically just sat in their seat and they're in the, bo- in the toilet for yeah. a bit. And, and the stakes aren't very high, are no. they? I mean, effectively, what this is, is a long film about whether or not someone's going to change a hotel room. Yeah. Isn't it? That's all it's about. Rachel McAdams, God bless her. Oh, she is acting her heart out here mm. as well. And she, I think she does a really good job. And I think she is... She's everything I've come to expect from Rachel McAdams. And um, there is a couple of really good, like, they have quite good fights, which I think are good. I read a bit of trivia, so there's a bit in a bathroom where he, like, throws, like, she she writes on with hand soap. Oh, seat a, a number warning whatever it is, on the mirror. Has a bomb. Uh, so that the next person going in would be, would, like, raise the alarm and he would be, you know, arrested or whatever um but he comes in and finds out and he throws her against the wall and she she he he threw her against the wall in the take and she she got knocked out for half an hour apparently oh really yeah which is funny because in the film a little earlier than that there's quite a shock moment where he does knock her unconscious while they're sat next to each other headbutt her he smashes her face in and she has a little sleep for a bit um so just some of the some of the points that the suspense is built around are too silly. The fact that it's about changing a hotel room, that is not high-stakes drama. The fact that there's a whole long sequence about whether or not the in-flight phones have reception or not, that is considered by this film to be an extremely frightening moment. And it's not really. No, no. It really did remind me of Final Destination, though. And even though that the opening only the opening bit of Final Destination is on a plane, but that's the bit I remember. And then they kind of cast the camera pans across all these different passengers doing all their different like flight rituals and they do that a little bit on this oh yeah like the grumpy man in the terminal ends up being the doctor oh, yeah. the woman who he she lends her who, who lisa lends her book to ends up being they all get subtly woke well not yeah. that subtly no. they all get woven back into the plot yeah. but with final destination that's even more obvious because especially once you're onto like final destination two or three or whatever yeah. as you're introduced to people all you're thinking about is how is this going to come to mean they die later yeah exactly yeah the, the, the fact that you know anything about them means they're going to die but um, so yeah, I found those like it was just like filmmaking tro- filmmaking tropes at its kind of highest form, right? And I expect a little bit more from Wes Craven, and he didn't really. There was no real suspense. There was no real thriller. It wasn't even that violent. I, only, I think only one person dies in the whole film. 
She manages to get away from him on the flight by stabbing him in the throat with a pen. Which he recovers extremely quickly from. Oh my For God. a man who's basically had a pen through his throat. Yeah. But it's, I suppose, and they've done that so that he can't make the call to get her father assassinated as well. She takes got no his phone, eh? Yeah, so she's trying to make it as hard as possible for that to happen. I mean, I, I don't think, I thought she was just trying to kill him. Oh, I think I, I think she's certainly trying to kill him, but I think she's had enough time with that pen to think if I don't kill him, at least he can't make the call mm. as well. Okay, yeah, fair. And then there's a brilliant chase through the flight through the airport, and if I can, we just have a conversation. Here? <laughs> can I just say something? Can I just say something? If I have to see one more chase sequence with a woman running in heels, <laughs> I do not know what anyone's thinking. All, all I can think. This is an awful thing to say, but it is a male director putting their woman in heels and thinking, yeah, cool, so you're going to then run away for... And you're going to do, like, a half marathon here. You've got at least 10k or something to run. So just keep sprinting, sprinting. Do not take your shoes off. Don't ever take your shoes off. If I was in that situation and I was sat in an aeroplane with a guy and I was like, right, fucking hell, I'm going to I'm gonna stab this thing in his throat and then I'm going to leg it. I would slip off my heels. I mean, it'd be the first thing you do, wouldn't it? Yes. Yeah. Also, if if Wes Craven or whoever was producing, if their direction was run in heels, they must have been there shooting for three or four days, watching poor Rachel McAdams yeah. cripple herself. Yeah. <laughs> At no point thinking, yeah, you'd throw the heels. I mean, I know at, at one point she does have to use it as a weapon. But she does. She could carry it. And she's that got is not free for hands. Ages. Also, she trip they trip her up. Yeah. At one point too. And it's 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 a bit of life imitating art here because the the bit in there's a bit in the film. Sorry, it's the other way around. But there's a bit where they try and very clearly mark Killian Murphy as oh actually no now he's a baddie mm. by him describing her as having like a female hysterical reaction mm. while he's going to give her some male fact based chat yeah. and it seemed so blatant like even someone who is a real chauvinist mm. wouldn't say it like that no. it's and it was really heavy-handed yeah and it wasn't smart and she's running in heels i mean that 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 goes on a, that's a finger for <laughs> you know it's like that's bad this is bad she's running in heels that that's a reason for me not to like this film because i hate it i hate it when films do that it's immediately marked you against it and it wasn't a good film to begin with people can barely walk in heels let alone sprint mm-hmm. and she's sprinting for a long time she's up escalators she's in and out this hotel um this, host- this airport and then she's driving she's absolutely hooning it back yep. to save her dad basically and then there's a really great uh there's a really great like it is quite Halloweeny. In mm. she's hiding around corners, and he's in the, they're in the it, wardrobes and yeah. stuff, and behind shower curtains. This is where Wes Craven's scream pedigree comes back, isn't yeah. it? It's very screamer. Um, so, I mean, my problem with Red Eye. I mean, firstly, it's not Killian Murphy's finest hour. I don't think it's anyone's. It's not Wes Craven's finest hour. It's not Rachel McAdams' finest hour. No, it's, it hasn't been up my finest hour. Yeah. But from the posters and when it came out, I thought this looks like an exciting, tight one location pin sharp psychological thriller mm. and what I got was I would say a good quality straight to TV movie agreed yeah it was a really Saturday dis- afternoon yeah really disappointing and I did expect a lot more from all of these people um, I've got a little few little bits of trivia so Killian Murphy wanted this role so badly apparently that he took a plane from England to Hollywood two days before his wedding to have lunch with Rose Craven and um, and Craven later gave him the part saying 
Similarly to you, babe, that his eyes won him over. Oh, yeah, there you go. I mean, I can see why he wanted it on paper, because, like like me, he thought it was probably a pin-sharp psychological thriller. Mm. Uh, He didn't realise it was going to end up being such a schlocky thing, where at the end... Also, we need to talk a little bit about his neck scarf that he wears to cover the wound from where he's been stabbed in the neck. He looks like some sort of... Camp literary professor yeah, like prancing around, <laughs> prancing around her dad's house at the end with absolutely no. There was no sense of fear. I, I was not scared of him. Like no. he, he was going. He's going to jump out from behind the door. Who gives a shit? Yeah, like no. it, there was no peril by the end no. at all. Oh, it was so so such a letdown. And uh, we're not the only people who found it a letdown. Have you ever looked on IMDb reviews? Sometimes, yeah. <laughs> never done it before and it was so fucking funny so <laughs> we are so there are many many people who love this film so i'll give you one of the one of the most um bizarre unbelievable high praise a uh, few of the re- review titles okay here. there's just the titles number one it could easily be at hitchcock level <laughs> i mean it could if hitchcock directed it and everybody in it was <laughs> different the title of it. wait saw red eye for the second time and it was better this time well mm. No. I I saw Red Eye for the second time and it was better because at least now I kind of knew what to expect. Wait, <laughs> Wes Craven is most thrilling since dot dot dot. I don't remember. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and this is the second one. One of the best thrillers ever made. I must see. No. In explanation. No, no. <laughs> but even better are some of the bad review titles. Mm-hmm. Are you? Just, I'm just gonna. I'll roll off a few. I've got a lot. I'm gonna warn you. Uh, but we'll just I'll just speed through them, okay? More holes than Blackburn, Lancashire. <laughs> Turn off your reasoning, mechanics to enjoy. Useless, boring, pointless, dragging, weak. I could go on. Red whiny eyes. Just not that great. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> Most awful story ever. Damn! 43 pages of comments and going strong for this piece of shit? <laughs> <laughs> this movie was terrible! Almost as bad as Scream 2. More than airplane, spelt P-L-A-I-N. Mm. Excellent. I give it a one because there's no zero. Uh, I mean, I wa- there should be a zero. That's that, I, I, I only be needs to fix this game there. I want my $20 back. $20? <laughs> the passes were free, but it wasn't worth the gas burn to get there. Stupid hunk of Hollywood garbage. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Just dead eye. And then this is, I can't believe this one. Red Eye was terrible. And so was Flight Plan in brackets. Oh, they've done you. And then this is the saddest one, uh, talking about high praise. First ever thriller for me, and it was great. Mm, I mean, that is truly the words of someone with no bar for comparison. That review was dated from 2014, so I can't attest for the age of this reviewer, but to be old enough to be able to put write a review on IMDb, and that is your first thriller. And, and also, you're you're gearing up to watch your first thriller, and rather than going to see something new, you've chosen a film that's n- nine years old at the point that you and that film's Red Eye. I'm sorry. I feel bad for you because there are so many other good thrillers out there, and you fucked it. Like, yeah. But also, if this is a good thriller in your eyes, probably best not to watch another thriller. Yeah. Well, no, you're gonna have your mind blown by one that's actually good, <laughs> aren't you? Well, or just like shit your pants. Yeah. So it's a shame, but Red Eye is bad yeah. uh, in a kind of TV movie sort of way. If you want a thriller that is very light on thrills, if you want a flight movie that doesn't take place on an airplane for about 50% of its running yeah. time, 
if you want Killian Murphy to be briefly charming, then briefly sinister, then quite boring, yeah. this is the film for you. Yeah. Um, so that was your pick. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> I I tried to go highbrow. I wasn't sure it was his finest hour, but I knew it was a film that he featured in fairly prominently. Mm. Uh, and obviously it was big budget. It was big director and it was talked about a lot of the time. 2010's Inception, uh, directed by Christopher Nolan, of course. Wait, uh, when you, whenever you say Inception, don't you only ever think of the Alan Partridge? Yeah, the Alan Partridge scene where he's trying to book tickets for Inception on an automated movie I, line. Even it's quite a niche reference for people that don't listen to Monkey Tennis, my other podcast. Yeah, but um, when anyone says, "Oh, I saw Inception at the weekend," I then repeat it with saying, "Inception." Inception. No. <laughs> anyway, look that one up in your own time. Um, so yeah, this is, uh, I would say, I mean, we've had Interstellar since, but probably Christopher Nolan's most ambitious film in terms, oh, of, in terms of how it looks, in terms of the themes. And I'll be the first to admit that the first time I watched this in the cinema, I did not understand a lot of it. Generally, films that make it to a, a, a multiplex near me are simple enough for me to get. This took a bit of working out. Second time round, more enjoyable because I feel like I I got it. Was this your second time watching this it? This is the second time watching mm, it. Yeah, I think I think this was my second, maybe third, but I agree. First time I watched it, I was like, oh. <laughs> it really took me and it, it's quite long and so you have to really concentrate for the for almost all of it. Like yeah. if you if you miss a point then it kind of unravels around you. You can't take a tea break mm. without pausing this film, can you? Even no. though it's two and a half hours long. But I don't you think it needs that two and a half hours? It couldn't have been trimmed, I don't think, much. No. I think you're right, actually, yeah. And, and I didn't, I, at no point do I feel like, oh, God, yawn. Like, it, it does, it keeps moving along at a, at a really nice pace. Mm. Um, but it's, yeah, qu- quite complicated and that's a long time to have to concentrate for. It took Christopher Nolan eight years to write the screenplay for this. Uh, yeah, and I can understand why, because it's so layered and hard to explain. But, I mean, essentially, probably if you're listening, you've seen it already, but it's got a great ensemble cast and it's basically about a guy called Cobb who's who effectively is, is a dream, is a thief uh, he steals information from uh, influential people through their subconscious by going into their dreams. But he uh, he's basically lost everything he ever loved because of this job. Uh, he's given an opportunity to win it all back or most of it back uh, by doing the opposite of stealing an idea, by implanting an idea uh, through a process called Inception uh, into Killian Murphy's character, Robert Fisher's mind. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that if he can get Robert Fisher to break up his uh, recently deceased father's company, then uh, then Cobb will be given access to his kids who live in America. He can't see them for complicated, dead wife-related reasons mm. that become apparent. You are much better at describing the plots of films than I am. To be honest, I had to really sit down and think about how to explain this briefly because it is, it's is—it's compl- you could spend half an hour talking well, about the, the labyrinth that is this film. Red Eye wasn't complicated. No. And I tripped over that explanation. <laughs> that no one's business. So you've done a very good job. Um I mean, around Killian Murphy, there's there's a great cast in this film. Yeah. So uh, I would argue, at its core, it's a Leonardo DiCaprio film. Oh, he's 100%. He, he, it's it's his I don't film. Think that's arguable. I think okay. that is true. But I would say after him, it's arguable who is second villain. Joseph Gordon Levitt. Well, you've got yeah, you've got Joseph Gordon Levitt, who is kind of who's who's Cobb's right hand man, I guess. He also, when they go into a dream within a dream within a dream, and there's three dreams unfolding at the same time, one of them, the middle one. Joseph Gordon-Levitt has basically got all the action to himself. Yeah, and some of the best action. Yeah, yeah. But, but I would say, that the, on the other hand, 
uh, Robert Fisher, Killian Murphy. I could, you could argue yeah. he's second fiddle in that he's the most important character, one of the most important characters in the movie after Cobb. Plot wise, yeah, but yeah. he he's not. He doesn't have like I think. Um, what's her face the woman oh Ellen Page Ellen is Page. the other one I was going to say because yeah. she is effectively Cobb's student if you like yeah. uh, she's got an important role to play and yeah. also she's the, pretty much the only prominent woman who's alive in yeah. this film yeah I mean that. yeah Tom Hardy does a good job I think I think actually they're all like as, as an ensemble piece like Leonardo DiCaprio is obviously the, the standout but I think they're, they're, all the others are as supporters are mm. equally pe- pegged I, I guess at its core it's kind of an ensemble heist movie mm. you know it's Ocean's Eleven if Ocean's Eleven was smart uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, I don't you know, know about that they're basically having to pull off you know a very complicated bit of espionage they're having to they're having to, you know, band together, rely on each other to do the perfect crime. Yeah, but where's Vegas in all of this? Sure, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit more, a bit more literally than I was taking it. But Where yeah. do the chips fall? Yeah, there's no chips in this film. I mean, guys. Um. So yeah, there's lots of dream within the dream moments. Um. Some interesting stuff I found out is that when they were advertising this film, they had Michael Caine as one of the prominent, prominently billed characters. Oh. The film is 228 minutes long. Would you like to hazard a guess how many of those minutes Michael Caine is in the film for? Two. Three. Yeah, right. Less than 2% of the runtime of this film has That's Michael Caine in it. I know. I think it's cheeky to even put him on the poster, Agreed. to be honest. Um, but didn't you get mad, like, Batman vibes when he was in it? Yeah. Yeah, Nolan and uh, and him together. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And obviously Killian Murphy's come back to Christopher Nolan films in Batman, and he's uh, also in Dunkirk, as we mentioned. Sure. So. Yeah, there's a through line there. Mm. Um, it, one thing it made me think, kind of aside from the Killian Murphy thing, is that Joseph Gordon-Levitt is not in a huge amount of films, is he? He's been in this. He's been in 500 Days of Summer. He directed and starred in Don John. He doesn't turn up in much stuff. He I was want... in Looper. Yes, but um, he. Well, firstly, I think he picks very good films. Yeah. But also, he is not in films with the frequency that his peers are. No, I don't think. you're probably right. I get you. Uh, yeah, I think he's a really good actor, though. Mm. I mean, nothing will ever beat Ted Brock from the Sun, so <laughs> um, which I rewatched uh, like a few years ago, and it's still brilliant. Um, but I maybe he just you know, I, and he did Fifty Fifty, which is quite a big. Yes, film he did. Him. Yeah, that's true. I think that's yeah, you're true. right. He just makes really good choices and doesn't like chase the films. He just does what what he wants when he wants, yeah. rather than like burning out like five films every year. I don't think I've ever seen a shit or even a bad Joseph Gordon-Levitt film. I I agree. I as think far he's as I can... really classy, yeah. and he's he's really attractive, and um, he's very cold in this. I think he's quite cool. Yeah, and they've obviously they, there's a bit of a subplot where there's a bit of animosity between him and Thomas Hardy's character, mm. which is never really explained too much, but. Mm. There are obviously, it's, it's the kind of film where there are little clues littered throughout it, little things in the background, people appearing in windows mm. and kind of, there's so many, there's so much discussion over, you know, whether or not there are plot holes and mm. whether the whole film is a dream and all of this kind of thing online. I won't go too deeply into the yeah. conspiracy theories, but it's discussion provoking. Sure, man. And I think Leonardo DiCaprio does a really good job too. Like, I think Leonardo DiCaprio has had his fair share of absolute fluffs. Like, he's not, he doesn't get it right every time. Mm-hmm. But I think as he's gotten older and his career has progressed, he has got it right more and more often. Mm. And obviously, and he's in, um, he's with Hardy in The Revenant as well. Yeah. Um, and so, and, and I think there is, a, he, he has a really natural chemistry with all of the people. And I think Marion Cotillard as well is, she, I mean, she's, I think, one of the sexiest women alive. Mm-hmm. And, 
um, I think she does she does an amazing job in this. Yeah, I mean, especially as everyone's got such an interesting role to play in this film. She is effectively not really playing a person. She's playing mm. a figment of an imagine. She's playing the imagined memories of a person, yeah. which is kind of you know is is quite you can imagine it'd be quite difficult. Yeah, yeah. Very unique challenge yeah. to act in that way. And I think the way that, like he that Nolan chooses to show the 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 elevator going down, sort of in a sort of Dante style. Uh, right down to the basement where he keeps his deepest, darkest secrets mm. and stuff. It's it's really symbolic, and um, I think I, I I just I think the more times I've watched it, uh, every time well I've like, watched it twice, mm. but I, this when we watched it last night, I I I audibly went oh because mm. I think there's such a lot of subtle context and subtle layers of like callbacks yeah the way the dreams affect one another and all of that kind of stuff is really fascinating um and and yeah like the you know obviously ellen page's character ariadne is is the architect of these dreams so it's kind of you know her influence uh i think the big kind of snow base in the deepest dream Mm. that's based on a very on some famous architecture as well like there's lots of lots of references to real life things and ariadne's name that's in in some mythology that ariadne is the mistress of the labyrinth so that makes sense as well um another bit of trivia i saw is that at the beginning when uh when cobb is testing her to see how good an architect she is he asks her to draw a maze that he can solve in in a minute uh, and the first two she does are too simple. The third one she does uh, has no way out, uh, if you look very closely. So it can be solved in a minute, but the solution is that there is no solution. And oh. that's how he knew that she was smart enough to, to become the architect. Did you know that by watching it? No, I knew that by reading it on IMDb. <laughs> I'm not that smart. Did you see that, see that little maze that she did and you're like, there's no way out of that. No. Good luck. Not, Good in, luck the, not in the amount of time that was flashed up on screen. You'll never solve that one, son. <laughs> um, coincidence alert, Killy Murphy... <laughs> Wait... Sound the, Sound the alarm. <laughs> Killian Murphy spends a lot of time on the plane in this film, arguably more time than he does yeah. on the in the plane based film Red Eye. Uh, <laughs> he's got he is a, asleep. He is asleep, but you know, technically, for most of the runtime of this film, he is on a plane. True, yeah, technically. Uh, only this time, he's the one that's been knocked unconscious. He does a pretty good job, I think, Killian Murphy in this. Although I, I, I don't. He, I don't think he he plays like the grieving son, right, and sort of you know battling his own disappointment and his his relationship with his father. So yeah. it's kind of one dimensional, really, because he can only really be in that in that area. Yeah, he's playing a pawn, isn't yeah. he? Everyone, he's the only one that doesn't really know what's no. going on. But I do I do like it because I think, like I say, he's got that edge of anxiety about his all of, a lot of his performances, mm. and I think in this one it really works. You know, he's got that kind of slightly spoilt, slightly petulant kind of, you know, he's 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 dissatisfied. Mm. And I think that that like edge uh, is, is a nice, yeah. a nice aspect of uh, of his acting in this film. Yeah, agreed. Do you do you think that Jamie Dornan, 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 yeah, because Dornan, he's obviously Irish too and. Killian Murphy, who are kind of, they're a similar age. Mm-hmm. I think Jamie Jordan came out a bit later than Killian Murphy, perhaps. But I wonder if I wonder who who's had the stronger career because Jamie Dornan is an absolute I mean, dreamboat dish, heartthrob. It depends. Swoon. I love that you always associate how well they've done with how good looking they are. 
Well, that's what I'm, no, it just came back to my earlier point about how I don't think Killian Murphy's a very convincible, kind of suave, handsome. He, I don't think he plays that very well because I, I don't personally find him that handsome. But Jamie Dornan, on the other hand, mm-hmm. whoo But I feel like Jamie Dornan has a little bit gone down the path of least resistance. I'm good looking, I'm going to be in Fifty Shades, where, where all the people going to see this film care about whether I'm good looking or not, and I'm going to mm. absolutely rake in those bucks. I mean, I'll tell you something, I've actually never seen Fifty Shades of Grey, mm-hmm. um, but I'm basing all of my judgement on The Fool. On The Fool, yeah, okay. Because you love murderers. <laughs> <laughs> yep, you got me. It's true, <laughs> well, alright. Oh. Something I've got to tell you. No, <laughs> Um, yeah, I guess they probably have come up at similar times. I would imagine, I, I think, I haven't checked this, but I think Killian Murphy's a couple of years older. Yeah. Um, and I feel like I, if I was an actor, I would rather have taken Killian's choices than Jamie's, personally. Yeah, you're probably right. Um, I think Killian Murphy, it's, it's weird, isn't it? Because we're trying to find his finest hour. He's been in a lot of good films. I think he's made mostly good choices. But he's rarely the standout mm. star in the mm. thing that he's in. I wonder if his finest hour is yet to come. Or maybe it's in TV. Maybe it's yeah. Peaky Blinders. And we've never really seen Peaky Blinders. And I do. I think you can't really deny how much everybody else loves it. And so I do think Peaky Blinders is probably his finest hour, mm. despite not seeing it, but not having seen it. But I think I, I think we should watch that. Actually, what series I, is it on now? It's on the fifth series now. Oh. They just had their own festival. I mean, I've seen the first few episodes, and I it was it was fine. And I could imagine I. Could, get drawn into it if I kept watching it's it. It's really stylish as well and I can see him being that kind of I can't remember his what who, who he plays but he's like the he's like the, the head of the family of this kind of mafia based family in the north, right? Is it Birmingham or is it Birmingham based? <laughs> yeah, I think so. That's I don't Midland. know. You and I have not seen it, so you're asking the wrong person. Yeah, that's true. Let's watch it. I think we should get cracking. We should like buy the box set or something. Like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's on BBC, right? It's on BBC, oh, yeah. Oh, just get it on iPlayer. Yeah. No way. There's people listening to this, you know. Oh. Um, so uh, I mean another thing I quite liked is that um, that uh, Christopher Nolan kind of turning the inside of someone's mind or kind of ethereal forces into physical stuff I like that a lot Mm -hmm. so this is a film that's all about you know dreams and the subconscious but it's also massive explosions buildings bending over one another zero gravity fight sequences like he's kept it punchy it's an action film as much as it's a kind of a thinker yeah uh, that scene where Jason Jason Gordon-Levitt is um that the 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 hallways like rotating. Mm. That was a rotating set, wasn't it? Yeah, they um they didn't use much CGI in a lot of that stuff. And he Joseph Gordon Levitt did all but one of his stunts in this film. That's amazing. Like that, to film to film that must have been so tricky, like mm. logistically. And for for them to have a whole fight in it, I, it it's one of my favourite scenes in the whole film actually. And I really love that the the, the how it messes with time. Um, how the the van, how the, to get the kick from the, when the van comes off the bridge. Yeah. That slow motion shot is is, is dragged out over maybe like twenty minutes of the film. Yeah. And then hit then then Jason Levitt doing all of his all of his like floaty wire work, which must he was on wires for ages. Yeah. And then to do that whole thing in the lift, and then and, and maybe then, that's and then, why he's not in films very often because it's fucking knackering. Maybe. <laughs> Uh, and having done I've done a shoot with wire work and it is really it's really challenging for the people having to do it so I've seen making obs of that of that set that turning set and Mm -hmm. it just looks absolutely mind bending and I think of 
of Nolan's films where he tries to show something non-physical in a physical way, mm. I thought this film did it much better than Interstellar did. Do which you? Interstellar oh. came later. I mean, I love Interstellar. I think it's very moving. Spoiler alert for people that haven't seen Interstellar. But the whole the whole thing about him trying to force the book out of the bookshelf kind of through oh. space-time, I found that... I mean, I'm sure it checks out, you know metaphysically but it i just i found it i found it a bit silly um Uh, inception i thought tied the two things together in a more satisfying way yeah i I think you're right inception is a bit more satisfying but um i think interstellar is a smart film and i agree the book bit at the the end is a bit i think i need to rewatch Interstellar. and they also i mean nolan also loves that idea of people aging at different speeds and then coming back together doesn't he that's something that's happened in both films because in interstellar there's that that um planet that has a, a completely different time um, speed to the to the to yeah. Well, well, I think it's yeah. It's once... so they're on the they're on it's the one with all the water and they're on there for like ten minutes and then they get back up into space and they've been gone for like fifty years and the dude who's still up there is really old. Yeah, yeah, old. yeah. And I think there's in there a section where like they make a small mistake and it costs the people on the ground like three years yeah, or something of their yeah. time. Yeah, yeah. It's really that's really an interesting concept. And also, I mean, fair play to Christopher Nolan for getting concepts like that into films this big. Because oh, yeah. we'll get onto the budget later, but this is a colossally expensive and successful film. Was it successful? Yeah. Oh, that's, I mean, yeah, I'm not surprised. Um, it, when, was it, when did it come out? This came out in t- 2010. Okay. So it's almost a decade old. years old. Uh, yeah. Um, a couple of little things I found out as well. Uh, Kate Winslet turned the role of Mal down. Um, Mal. Uh, Mal. Yeah, Mal, sorry, because uh, she didn't just didn't see herself in, in the role. Well, Winslet and DiCaprio, guys, you need to spend We've a bit of time apart. apart yeah. yeah. Um, I, I, I love their chemistry, but I think um, I think Mary Cogswell played, played like that kind of deranged, going a bit mad thing way better. Yeah, I agree. Um, in When this is broadcast on Japanese TV, in the section where there are three dreams going simultaneously, mm. they had a caption in the corner of the screen to let audiences know which dream they were in no. because it was too complicated. <laughs> yeah, apparently. Just in Japan? Uh, according to IMDb, yeah. Um, another thing that you might appreciate as you've worked on a lot of sets and filmed bits and pieces, uh, in an interview with Entertainment Weekly, Christopher Nolan explained that he based the roles of the Inception team on the roles that are used in filmmaking. So mm. Cobb is the director... Arthur is the producer, Ariadne is the production designer, Eames is the actor, Sato is the studio, and Fisher is the audience. Mm, yeah, uh, I can see that. Which is, you know, I, as soon as I read that, I was like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, that's really interesting, isn't it? Uh, final bit of fun fact, Ariadne's hair is in a tight bun in the hotel sequence, so filmmakers didn't have to figure out how her hair should move in zero gravity. So they just Brilliant. save themselves a job. Although, fair. That's, it's fair, but you would sort of think, if you're making Inception and you're coming up with all the solutions to the other problems... Just do the hair as well, surely. Nah, you, those, are, those are really annoying, boring details that would have sucked up a bunch of time and a bunch of money, and it's just like, let's just pop it in a bun, babe. <laughs> <laughs> so we've searched possibly in vain for Killian Murphy's Finest Hour, um, but let's have a little look at how these films were reviewed and how much money they made. Sure. I think we can probably guess which has the better reviews well, and which has made more cash. Yeah. But, uh, Red Eye, I am astounded to know that... Uh, despite all the IMDb reviews you read out, was rated 6.4 out of 10, mm. which I think that's actually higher than some films we've had on previous episodes. Wow. I mean, I think it's possibly the worst film we've seen so far. 
ever. Since we've been doing the podcast. I don't think it's... Te- I mean, it's fun, but it's dumb, isn't it? I'd never seen it before. And if I had seen it, I definitely wouldn't have picked it. Mm. <laughs> so. One thing I do like about Red Eye, although it's probably not an artistic choice, is that when they say... When, they, when Red Eye comes up at the start of the film, it's in the same font as the poster. And that almost never happens. And I've got a lot of time for that. I like that brand consistency. Oh my gosh, you are... <laughs> but it's usually a sign that marketing is too involved in the film if they've made it look the same. Uh... But I like marketing, so what can I say? Um, it cost $26 million to make Red Eye, apparently. Uh, it's opening weekend in the US. It got 16 million of those back. Um, and worldwide, in total, it's made $95.5 million. Wow. So by that reckoning, it is a success. I guess so. Uh, but by my eyes and brain, it's not. <laughs> um, Inception was rated 8.8 out of 10, the highest score of any film we've looked at so far, I think. Yeah. I think so. Uh, I, I think that's fair. I think it's fair. Yeah, yeah. I do think it's a. Re- I do think it's a good film, and I would. You can't watch it too close together, but I. I think it's it gets better with every viewing, mm. and I would continue to watch it. You know, some films like really good films. You're like, oh, cool, wow, I've seen that, and I just don't think I can do that again. Mm. I feel that about quite a few films that are you know quite hard going or hard to watch. I've watched it once, and I just can't. Do you know what I would love to go to is if somebody put on a series of screenings of films like Interstellar and Inception, followed by a little talk by someone who understands the concepts, like a professor or scientist, just about the reality of the film. You mean like someone who does Inception? Yeah, no, you know what I mean though, like, you know, how how realistic is this? What do we know about the subconscious mind? And then what do we know about time space? You know, I think that'd be fascinating. Yeah, but I don't think you can go into people's dreams. (laughs) All right. Uh, Inception cost an estimated $160 million to make. Wow. I mean, I th- that's a lot of money, but every dollar is on the screen. Yeah. I don't think they've wasted much there. No, I agree. And, you know, this is a big... It's got big names, big director, big concept. I'm not surprised at that budget. Mm. Uh, so opening weekend, $62.5 million back in the US. Uh, and to date, worldwide, $829,895,144. Mm. Wow. That is a huge haul, uh, yeah. and deservedly so. Congrats. Do you think it's one of, what's the top three Nolans? Or Well, here are some other Nolan films. Mm. See if you can, let's, let's prepare a little quiz here. See if you think these cost more or less than, uh, than the Inception. Uh, Batman Begins. Cost less to make. Yeah, cost more or less to make. I mean, that cost more to make. Cost less. No. Yep, uh, Inception was more expensive. Uh, Dunkirk. Less. That cost less than Inception, yep. Interstellar. More. Interstellar, according to IMDb, cost slightly more. Uh, uh, the Dark Knight. More? Yep, uh, 185 million versus 160 million. And finally, The Dark Knight Rises. You're going to have to remind me what these ones are. Wait, These so are the three Batman films that Nolan did. Batman Begins, followed by The Dark Knight, followed by The Dark Knight is Rises. Is Batman Begins the Bane one? No. Oh. Dark Knight Rises is the Bane one. The last one in the trilogy. Um, I think that was less. Uh, no, it's more. Oh. I think the rule... Well, what I learned from this, the rule with trilogies, especially Batman ones, is every film costs more than the one before it because... Mm. They've got to keep the same actors and they all want more money. Yeah, good uh, point. Mm-hmm. So as the Dark Knight rises, so does the Dark Knight Rises budget also rises. Rises. <laughs> yeah. It all rises. All rises for the city streets. Um, <laughs> so we have not conclusively 
found Killian Murphy's finest hour, but perhaps you've got an idea of what it is, uh, or you want to talk about the films we've discussed or the ones that we haven't, uh, filmclubpod at gmail.com is the email address to catch us. And on Twitter, we're at filmclubpoduk. Easy for me to say. (laughs) That's filmclubpoduk. It was easier to say when I thought it was Film Club Pod, Club Pod, and then I found out that had been claimed, so I had, I had to add UK, making it at Film Club Pod UK. Oh. So uh, we should pick another category. Can you imagine, we've done we've done Danny Boyle directed, we've done Killian Murphy, can you imagine if you open this up and it's like Ewan McGregor, or <laughs> best film about train spotting? I'm going to put it back if it's Ewan McGregor. Yeah, come on. that guy. Let's see if we can dig out something a bit more diverse. Oh, this has been folded up. A uh-huh. lot of times. Let's have a peek. <laughs> this is awful. Let's have a look. Who wrote that? <laughs> so uh, next, we- next week's probably going to be uh, a little lighter than uh, than Inception. This is a bad one. <laughs> it's going to be fun. Uh, thank you so much for listening to Film Club. Uh, ah! <laughs> done it again film club clod uh, thanks for listening thanks for listening to film club uh, join us next week for episode 5 when we'll be discussing uh, the next category which you've decided already is going to be bad films well... and you might be right yeah we'll see uh, thanks very much for listening and goodbye okay bye theme music is written and performed by Tom Rosenfeld and Joe Silverstone. Uh, if you want to find out more about them and the many great bands they're in, including Mesodorm, The Spindle Ensemble and Our Man in the Field, you can go to Tom's Instagram at instagram.com slash four vertical, the number four and the word vertical, or instagram.com slash Joe Silvercello. That's J-O Silvercello.